Next, on Book TV's Afterwards, Republican Senator Mike Lee of Utah offers his thoughts on the overreach of government in colonial times and today. He's interviewed by Georgetown Law Professor Nicholas Quinn Rosencrantz. Afterwards is our weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. Senator, it's a pleasure to be with you. I'm, uh, I've just read your new book and I thoroughly enjoyed it. So it's an honor to be here to talk to you about it, our lost uh, declaration. Thank yeah. you. Pleasure is mine. Yeah. So um, you and I have spent most of our careers thinking and writing about the U.S. Constitution, uh, but here you've uh, taken a few steps back from that, uh, 11 years to be exact, to the Declaration of Independence. So what made you shift your uh, focus from the Constitution to the Declaration here? Having written two other books about the Constitution specifically, it occurred to me a few years ago that can't fully understand the Constitution or what it does, what its purpose is, unless you also understand the Declaration of Independence and what led to it. Uh, in some respects, I think it's fair to say that uh, the, the Declaration of Independence is itself the picture. The Constitution is the frame that holds the picture together. It's what there is there to protect the picture. But the picture itself is the Declaration. And yet, we don't talk about it as much as we used to, uh, along with the loss of civics instruction elsewhere in our education system. I think we have neglected the Declaration of Independence. So I wrote this book with uh, moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas in mind, uh, people who might want to get this for their kids and grandkids, so that they could learn the same things that they were taught as they were raised. I quite like this quote in your preface, quote, scores of students are busily engaged in the study of constitutional law, but who studies declaration law? And that's quite true. It uh, uh, does not really appear in law school curricula. And that does seem like a bit of a shortcoming. Talk a bit more about that. I and mean, where do you think that ought to go in a law student's or a high school student's education? First of all, I, I thought of you when I wrote this. I thought if anyone does specialize in that, it'd probably be <laughs> Professor Rosencrantz. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think we think of it as a legally operative document. In a, in a sense, you can't invoke it in the same way you could invoke a statute mm-hmm. or in the same way you would invoke a provision of the Constitution. It is nonetheless there as an animating principle or set of principles behind Uh, how we view government in general. It it should uh, superimpose itself on everything we see in law. One of the reasons I say that is because uh, Jefferson acknowledges a relationship between human beings and government that was itself, at the time, somewhat revolutionary. Uh, uh, That government is there to serve us, not the other way around, and that governments are themselves mortal institutions. They're instituted among men for the consent of the governed. Uh, This is in stark contrast to the way government was viewed uh, within Great Britain at the time. Mm -hmm. The King of England uh, believed in the divine right of kings. God and my right was was Mm -hmm. the slogan in English. And the the, the way they conceptualized government was that the king was born and ordained by Almighty God to rule and reign within the British Empire. Mm -hmm. So this document... The Declaration of Independence represented the significant shift in the way we viewed governments, mm. and, and, and a positive one, I believe. Mm. Uh, it was also quite a brave document for its uh, framers to sign. Talk a bit about that, if you would. Yeah, when, when they said they were pledging their lives uh, in addition to their sacred honor, they also literally their lives, they meant it. Mm. Uh, it was an act of treason to do this at the time. Mm-hmm. They knew that if the revolution failed, which, let's, let's face it, at the time, um, it was certainly not destined to succeed. It was not a foregone conclusion that they were going to win mm-hmm. that revolutionary war. After all, they were challenging. They were taking head-on mm-hmm. the world's greatest superpower. Safe to say it was a long shot. A long mm-hmm. shot, to be sure. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, but they did it anyway. I, mm-hmm. It's one of the things that uh, so inspires me about the story of the Declaration of Independence and one of the reasons I wrote Our Lost Declaration Because when we see uh, some of the people behind it, we realize that many of them didn't exactly have a lot to gain by this. They had a lot to lose. Mm. They didn't necessarily have a lot to gain personally by doing this. They were doing it because they believed in the dignity of the human soul. Mm. That's what the Declaration is all about. Mm, That's very compelling. And I have to tell you, I found the uh, writing very compelling. It really is a page-turner, which... um, one doesn't say often about a work of history. 
Uh, it's I the most to... gripping book ever written about the Declaration of Independence. I think that's safe to say. It's um, like Fifty Shades of Grey, but with more declaration scenes in it. Uh, and, yeah, it, yeah. And, and probably rated G or yes, P, maybe yes, PG. Yes, exactly. Um, now, uh, I was a bit surprised by this uh, bit of the author's note, and I wanted to ask you about it. So. It says in the author's note that you've, quote, taken some dramatic license with specific incidents or conversations and that, quote, some elements have been discreetly added to scene descriptions. Now, this is surprising to me because the book is clearly so meticulously researched and the history is so thorough and so careful. And yet you've uh, taken some dramatic license. Now, I imagine the goal here was to make the story compelling. And I can tell you as to that, you've certainly succeeded. It is a page turner. I imagine though some purist historians would uh, object to that as a technique. And so I'm just wondering if you could talk a bit about the thinking there. Certainly. Uh, One of the things that I've found is in describing historical events, especially historical events around the American Revolution, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, it can get a little bit dry. If you're trying to do something as a purely historical narrative, it can get a little bit dry. Sometimes it can help to get into the the, the, the head of one of the individuals we're describing. I'll give you an example of uh, uh, an instance where I did that. In the case of Thomas Paine, when we're describing his voyage across the Atlantic, uh, when he was uh, moving from England to the United States at the urging uh, uh, of Benjamin Franklin. Hmm. I describe what th- some of his inner thought processes might have been. Hmm. Now, we have no way of knowing exactly what he was thinking, hmm. exactly what he was feeling, but based on the uh, historical events uh, for which we have more than adequate um, uh, detail, hmm. we're able to imagine what he might have been thinking. It makes hmm. the story a little bit more interesting. It's quite obvious when I do it, and I'm very careful not to do anything that distorts the historical record. Uh, it's obvious when you do it in the sense that there are citations to most provisions it, it, and not to it, those It's provisions obvious or? that I do it in the sense that uh, in those circumstances, it's not something that anyone could have known. And in that circumstance, I don't have a citation saying this is from the Journal of Thomas Paine, okay. uh, describing exactly what his thought was at 11.38 p.m. Got it. But everything in this book is at least consistent with everything we know of the yes. historical record. Yes, and, yeah. entirely. Yeah, that makes good sense. Uh, now, I wonder, um, so uh, actually I have to say uh, you and I are uh, textualists and we take the words quite seriously. Uh, one thing I was very surprised by is you don't reproduce the text of the declaration in the book. Was there, What was the thinking there? I'm surprised it doesn't uh, appear word for word. The Declaration of Independence is something that can be found anywhere. It can be pulled up on any phone. Uh, I, I carry it with me. I've got a copy of it in my pocket at the moment. Uh, perhaps for a subsequent edition, we could consider um, including it as an appendix. Um, uh, but in this circumstance, I describe many of its provisions and, and the different structural features. I like to think that I covered most of the most important stuff, mm-hmm. and m- most of the Declaration is itself reproduced here in one form or another. Yeah, that's true. Not in its entirety, but that is a good suggestion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, let me ask you, uh, the Declaration, I've, of course, reread it as I was reading the book, and it has, in a sense, a very um, lawyerly structure. So the beginning of it, the first part's this uh, general statement of principles, and that is, of course, the most famous uh, path of it, the this general statement of natural law governing when people may alter or abolish their form of government. And the second part, by contrast, is much more specific and about facts. And as a lawyer would do, it lays out a sort of standard and then says, and here are how those these facts meet that standard. That seems to be the basic uh, structure. We're much more familiar now with that first, more general part and less familiar with the litany of facts or grievances, which is the second part. Uh, But you make a very compelling case that the second part is at least as important and uh, really should be more carefully studied. Now, can you talk a bit about that? What do you find in this list of grievances that is uh, so important and informative today? You're absolutely right. The second part, the the list of grievances or the indictment section against King George III, Mm -hmm. uh, it it is really important uh, to understand this section. And, and in particular, to read it in connection with the preamble. The, the, the preamble, the Statement of General Principles uh, section of the Declaration, makes a whole lot more sense 
if you read it in, in, in connection with the list of grievances against King George III. Yep. In other words, the fact that he was refusing to give his assent to the legislative bodies, uh, the, the fact that he was uh, uh, objecting in some cases to legislation authorizing the court system of mm-hmm. North Carolina, for mm-hmm. example. These are the kinds of things that would deprive them of, of rights that were theirs. The, the fact that the king was interfering with their trade and making it impossible for them to survive uh, was, was also something that reflected back on the fact that, hey, wait a minute, governments are supposed to be here to protect us, to protect our liberties. We have certain liberties, not by virtue of some monarch's uh, benevolent bestowal of them, n- not by virtue of an act of parliament, but we have those rights because we exist and mm. because God gave them that. Mm. God gave those rights to us. Mm. And that represented a pretty fundamental shift, one that has been important, certainly to the success of our system of government. Yeah, that's a hugely important point. I wonder if you could even say a bit more about that. Um, people think of the Declaration of Independence as uh, a foundational natural law document. And a central point is the idea that the, um, our rights predate governments, that yes. the, uh, rights are natural. So uh, t- talk a bit about that and how that's reflected in the Declaration. They are pre-political. Mm. Uh, and this reflected in many ways um, uh, the Scottish Enlightenment, uh, uh, some of the thinking that had been in the works uh, uh, for a couple of centuries in one way or another, or for a few thousand years in, in another respect. But there was an acknowledgement that uh, was distilled in the Declaration of Independence that these rights are not the government's to grant or withhold. Hmm. They exist before the government does. They exist uh, before human beings existed by virtue of our existence and the dignity that we accord to human life. Hmm. This, as, as much as we may take it for granted today or maybe not even think about it at all, hmm. Uh, this was somewhat revolutionary at the time. It, it was the natural outgrowth of the Scottish Enlightenment, and yet it hadn't really acquired um, a mainstream uh, accepted meaning in the sense that people were willing to use it as against a king. Hmm. Here they did, and it was treasonous, and it worked, and we won that war. Hmm. Now, so this conception of rights as pre-political or natural How would you say uh, that conception uh, is consistent or inconsistent with a sort of modern conception of positive rights to health care or free education or the uh, list of the wish list of the left today? I would describe it uh, as not compatible uh, with natural law, not compatible with the principles we described in this. Typically, what we talk about when we refer to natural rights uh, are there are things that the government may not do to you. Mm. Positive rights, uh, uh, the, the rights to health care or, or rights to this or that government program, those are not what we would typically think of in terms of rights. It's something that the government must provide for you mm. and must therefore take away from someone else in order to give it to you. That might be something that an individual might regard as good policy, but I think it's important to make the distinction between what someone might believe is good policy, or or not, uh, and a right. We do serious violence to the term right, to the very concept of rights, and to our rights when we dilute the use of the word, when we use it in circumstances that don't involve something that that the government may not do to you or allow uh, and facilitate uh, happening to you. That's yeah, a quite a nice way to put it, to say that these rights are pre-political, and it's incoherent, really, to say a right to government health care is pre-political. That, right. it, it assumes a government, and it, it assumes a government that takes from some and gives to others. It assumes a, a, a government, mm-hmm. a, a government with a large um, uh, network of uh, tax collection agents and uh, bureaucrats who are authorized to spend that money. Now, now again, the, I'm speaking here n- not with my policy hat on, mm. but with my declaration hat on. Yes. As a matter of Declaration of Independence and constitutional law thinking, uh, uh, natural rights, those things are not rights. They may or may not be good policy, but mm. they're not rights. Mm. Uh, now, one, uh, so uh, I very much like your focus on the grievances. Uh, another aspect of the grievances that are perhaps, uh, that's perhaps most relevant to your, um, your education point is that the grievances are often uh, 
echoed exactly in the Constitution. So uh, the Constitution um, protects against uh, specific uh, objections that the colonists had to King George III. Isn't that right? And yes. are there um, uh, particular provisions like that that you think were um, uh, that inform constitutional interpretation? The Declaration occurred in response to a whole bunch of abuses, hmm. including the abuses uh, of the rights to privacy that were held by British subjects. Exactly. What we would today call the Fourth Amendment, the right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures. Mm. Uh, the, the use of, of uh, uh, things like uh, rich, uh, of attachment mm. and, and kicking down people's doors, and, and uh, writs of assistance rather, mm. kicking down people's doors in order to collect information on what mm. they may have been doing to not comply with tax laws and mm. so forth. Mm. Uh, quartering of troops. Mm. Uh, the mere fact that in our constitutional structure we have uh, a requirement that war be declared by Congress, mm. not by the chief executive. This mm. was a departure, as described in Federalist 69 by Alexander Hamilton, mm. a departure from the old world way of doing things. The King of England had the authority to declare war. Mm. And then it was Parliament's job to catch up and provide whatever assistance needed uh, to, to be provided. But the King himself could declare war. In our system, you can't do that. Mm. These are all things that grew out of the grievances that we had against King George yeah. III. Yeah. Uh, quartering of soldiers is a terrific example. It's a, perhaps the most obscure provision of the Bill of Rights and a bit inexplicable unless you know this history. Right, yeah. right. So if you want to understand the Third Amendment, you want to understand, understand the Fourth Amendment. Yeah. If you want to understand the basic structure of the Constitution, most of that stuff, in one way or another, finds uh, some origin in our declaration and in the events that led to it. Yeah, I think that's right. Now, you know, I think the chapter I found most compelling actually was chapter seven about Thomas Paine and common sense. And you know, I'm, of course, a student of this era, and yet I learned quite a bit in that chapter. I wonder if you could just uh, tell a bit of the story of sure. Thomas Paine and uh, common sense. Thomas Paine, uh, really should be recognized much more mm. by Americans today yeah. as someone who was sort of a without which not of the American Revolution. Yeah. I don't think the revolution would have ever uh, have been possible. I don't think the declaration would ever have, uh, uh, have happened and succeeded, mm. uh, uh, but for Thomas Paine. Mm. When he wrote Common Sense, he aggregated the thinking of generations of scholars, uh, again, drawing on a lot of things that came out of the Scottish Enlightenment, and put them into prose, into uh, the language that was easy for everyone to understand. He was the original American revolutionary populist, you mm. might say. Mm. And he, a lot of his observations, I think, were made more relevant by his upbringing. He was raised in England in a town where he routinely observed abuses by the crown. He routinely observed men being hanged just outside of his town, uh, women being stoned to death. Uh, he, he observed all these abuses of government. And this made Thomas Paine very susceptible, very welcoming mm. of this sort of the Scottish Enlightenment type thinking. But he also knew uh, when he got to the United States, uh, uh, when he got to colonial Amer British colonial America, the urging of uh, Benjamin Franklin, he went into the magazine business and he knew how to communicate to people yeah. in language that they would understand and that they would find appealing. Hmm. So when he, when he wrote Common Sense, he had the, the common American reader hmm. in mind mm -hmm. and he knew how to communicate to them. You know, to put it in present day equivalent, his was uh, the bestseller of all bestsellers. Hmm. Uh, to put it in perspective, in the first three months today, if someone were to write something that has a percentage of population uh, uh, of the United States, He'd have to sell 12 million copies in the first three months mm. in order to rival what Thomas Paine's Common Sense did. Amazing. And yet at the time he published it, he had a hard time finding anyone who was even willing to print it yep. because it was treasonous. Yep. He ultimately found a printer in Philadelphia willing to do it, but that printer agreed to do it. That uh, Only if he offered all kinds of assurances and basically an indemnity agreement mm. uh, uh, as against any harm that might come to the publisher as a result. And he didn't put his name on the original version yep. because it was too dangerous. Yep. I love this fact that as, a, uh, as thinking about it uh, per capita, it's the greatest American bestseller of all time. That's, I hadn't ever thought of it in those terms. But yeah, it literally swept the nation. And 
Uh, you know, as you um, describe quite compellingly, there was a real conceptual shift that had to happen in the uh, mid-1770s. Um, uh, colonists, for the most part, thought of their um, thought of themselves as Englishmen and thought that their objection to King George was that they were not he was not treating them as he would treat Englishmen in London. And they were for years, um, primarily uh, seeking to, seeking essentially equal treatment, to be treated like Englishmen in London. And uh, it took a real conceptual shift for uh, the colonists to think, actually, that's not the remedy. It's not that we're looking for that. It's that we are looking for independence. And uh, um, in a way, it took Thomas Paine to push us over that conceptual edge. Do you think that's... Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly right. And I think what got Thomas Paine and what got so many other early Americans on board with this idea was this long train of abuses that mm -hmm. had occurred uh, under the reign of King George III. Yeah. Uh, this uh, unequal tax treatment, for example, mm. uh, the, the creation of a uh, de facto airtight, watertight monopoly of tea trade in America, the East India Company, mm. um, the fact that uh, trade generally was restrained. I tell the story of of uh, a young man who was the captain of a ship called the Charming Polly, mm -hmm. a, a, a trade sloop. Mm -hmm. And he was arrested in the Caribbean mm -hmm. because at the time, uh, Parliament had enacted legislation that made it very difficult for Americans to trade with uh, the colonies of other countries. Yeah. And, and this sort of unequal treatment of American colonial subjects of the crown caused the American people to see. It caused them to have a receptiveness to what Thomas Paine would write in Common Sense, that, mm -hmm. hey, wait a minute, oh, we're not being treated well. We're mm -hmm. being treated very unequally. And one of the things that Paine said so well was, why is it that we should continually defer to this man merely because of his parentage, mm -hmm. merely because of who his father was? Mm -hmm. Why should we do that? Mm -hmm. And that was a revolutionary question at the time, mm -hmm. uh, one that sparked a revolution and enabled it to succeed. Mm, yeah, and um, uh, you point out in the book, and I did not know this, so Thomas Paine was um, uh, not a wealthy man, unlike no. most of the framers. He had this, uh, as you say, runaway best-selling book, which uh, made him a fair amount of money, but then uh, I think you say that he donated it all. Is that so? To the cause, to the cause of the revolution, which is uh, something that is... Uh, so amazing, yeah. uh, the, the fact that he did this. Uh, not a wealthy man, which is part of what enabled him to communicate mm -hmm. to so many in yeah. language that would be familiar to them. Yeah. And even though he could have become very wealthy off of that single publication, yeah. he didn't yeah, because he chose not to. Amazing. And uh, uh, donated the proceeds to the Continental Army to yes. fight the cause. Yeah, uh, truly amazing story that I did not know. So that's, um, yeah, a great uh, fact. Actually, um, you talked about the... Um, the trade war uh, piece of this puzzle and the um, the uh, um, the uh, the restrictions of trade that were coming from England. I think readers today are particularly interested in how this is relevant today, what it should teach us today. So you have a whole chapter entitled "Trade Wars," and a lot of people are concerned that we are engaged in or on the brink of trade wars even now. What? What does this story have to tell us about uh, the current situation? Well, first of all, it reminds us of the fact that if you want to shut down an economy, restrict its trade. And uh, trade restrictions end up really hurting first and foremost the poor and middle class of any society. People whose jobs are most likely to be on the line are mm -hmm. most likely to be the first people hit by these things. Mm -hmm. um, it's also significant, I think, that uh, after all of these trade restrictions I imposed uh, on the American colonies by the Crown and Parliament, uh, 11 years after the Declaration was written, Congress went out of its way to make clear that it's Congress that's in charge of imposing taxes and uh, raising tariffs, taking any action that we would view as uh, consistent with starting a trade war. That was a power granted to Congress. Why? Well, because Congress was always intended to be the branch of government that is most dangerous uh, because it's most accountable to the people at the most regular intervals. It has this power to set policy. It has the power to declare war. And yes, it has the power 
to declare trade wars. One of the reasons why we put it there is because the people would remain uh, in touch and uh, the government would remain accountable to the people. I think today we need to remember that trade wars really don't have winners unless you count as winners the governments that maybe see themselves as more relevant and more powerful as a result of taking those actions. Trade wars typically have only losers and they tend to be poor and middle class individuals in any society that's subject to those trade restrictions. It's one of the reasons I think we ought to be concerned today that uh, over the last 80 years we've seen Congress through dozens and dozens of separate legislative enactments delegate over to the executive branch the power to take steps tandem up to beginning a trade war. Mm. Uh, I, I, it's one of the reasons why I introduced some legislation um, uh, last year called the Global Trade Accountability Act mm. that would require an affirmative vote by Congress whenever any of these authorities, including, for example, Section 232 tariffs, uh, are imposed. Uh, those could not, could not take effect without both houses of Congress affirmatively enacting them into law mm. and, and submitting them to the president for signature or veto. Mm. That's how uh, our system is supposed to work. And even though that is a feature of the Constitution, it's one that, yet again, is informed by the events that led to the Declaration. Yeah, that makes good sense. I know this is a particular cause of yours. As you say, Congress has delegated vast amounts of power to the executive branch, both in as to trade, but as to a wide variety of topics. And uh, I think it's a project of yours to try to claim a bit of that power back for Congress. Um, quite how did this happen and how can we get back from here? As I described in our last declaration, w one of the things that's difficult today uh, about getting people to connect with the principles of the founding and, mm. and of the era of the revolution and the Declaration of Independence is the fact that people uh, sometimes are, uh, are inclined to think, understandably, oh, we don't have a king today, therefore we don't have any form of tyranny. Well, in some ways we do. You have to look to where law is made by individuals who never stand for election. Mm. That was one of the problems with having a king, that was one of the problems with a monarchy. Mm. Uh, is there, in addition to not recognizing substantive limits on power, there was also n no ability to get rid of a tyrannical king. Hmm. Um, in some ways today, we have people who are not elected uh, by the voters, who are not accountable to the voters ever, who are making laws that are themselves sometimes oppressive. In fact, federal regulations cost the American economy an estimated $2 trillion a year. This is up from about $300 billion a year just 22 years ago when I first started following this problem. Yep. Over time, over the last 70 or 80 years, and this has occurred, I, I want to be clear, this is a nonpartisan issue. Under the leadership of Houses of Representatives, Senates, and White Houses of every conceivable partisan combination, You've seen Congress passing laws that are not really laws, but platitudinal statements. We shall have good law in Area X. Right. And we hereby delegate to uh, a commission or department or agency Y the power to make and enforce and interpret good law in Area X. This is good for almost no one, unless you happen to be one of those uh, bureaucrats. But I don't really blame the bureaucrats. Most of them are hardworking, well-intentioned, well-educated, and highly specialized. I blame Congress. Mm. Members of Congress find this much easier than the actual hard work of legislating. Mm. When you don't have to iron out the individual details of each law that comes forward and you just say, yeah, let's hand this over to this agency. Mm. Let them make good law in that area. Mm. You never stand accountable. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the problems we've got. One of the problems that should itself be reminiscent of the era that led to the American Revolution. Mm. Today, fortunately, we don't need a revolution. We don't need a revolution of the sort that involves mm. the canon and the musket, mm -hmm. because our own laws already prohibit us from making law the way we make a lot of these laws today. Mm -hmm. Those same laws that cost our economy two trillion dollars a year. All we need is for people to refamiliarize themselves with what rights are, are, with what the relationship is between the governed and the government, mm -hmm. and with the fact that the power is theirs, not that of the unelected, unaccountable bureaucrat. They can affect that change, but they've got to re-inject the revolutionary language of 1776 back into American political discourse. Mm. Yeah, you have this very compelling uh, subtitle, America's Fight Against Tyranny from King George to the Deep State. And uh, the connection's not obvious. I think most people would think, well, you know, the, the deep state, they're, it's not, they're not foreigners. These are Americans who are governing us. We have the problem being uh, governed by some 
distant king quite, but the connection, as you say, is lack of accountability. Quite, who are these people? And what do we do if we don't like what they're up to? And um, so it's a quite an interesting uh, conceptual link that you've drawn between uh, what the story then and the story now, and particularly the uh, vast growth of the administrative states. I agree. It is it is an interesting connection. It is uh, a connection that sadly has been unusual uh, uh, up until now, until uh, recently. It's one of the reasons I wrote our lost declaration. But I do think it's appropriate. And in fact, I think it's necessary for our system of government to, to function as intended in a manner that's respectful of the, the rights of individual Americans. The reason is what we what I refer to when I refer to the deep state here is that part of the government uh, the, uh, of, of the two political branches of government, meaning separate and apart from the judiciary, which, which is supposed to stand above, beyond, outside of the political realm. Once those uh, the, the men and women in the judicial branch take office and are sworn in as judges and justices, they don't stand for election. Outside of that universe, the two political branches, the executive and legislative branch, they're supposed to be run by people who either are themselves or, or stand immediately accountable to those who are subject to elections at regular intervals. Mm-hmm. We have a large segment of the executive branch, the, the administrative bureaucracy, that itself can operate for decades at a time with those effectively making the laws. The same people writing them as enforce them, by the way, which is itself a huge problem, mm-hmm. which is itself a definition of the term tyranny. It's not just that it can lead to tyranny, it is tyranny to have the same people making the law who also enforce the same law. But when you've got a significant segment of the executive branch of government consisting of people who will remain in power for decades, never standing for election, never really standing accountable to anyone who is himself or herself uh, accountable to the people through an election, that's a problem. That's the deep state, that's a form of tyranny, and the American people should expect more and demand better. Now, as you know, the Supreme Court has enabled that uh, pathology in some ways, uh, first by uh, permitting these vast delegations to uh, these agencies and then by uh, deferring to these agencies when they interpret regulations, including their own regulations and including regulations about the scope of their own uh, power. Do you think the remedy here is for the court to reverse some of those doctrines? I think that is a remedy. It is a potential remedy. Look, I would love it if the Supreme Court stopped just deferring to agencies based on their own interpretation of, uh, of a provision of law they're charged with administering. I would love it if they stopped doing that. And I think they should stop doing it. And I've introduced legislation uh, asking them to stop doing it, requiring them to stop doing it. And Justice Gorsuch in particular seems to agree with you about yes, that. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And there there does appear to be some growing sentiment on the court as manifested by the fact that uh, 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 former Judge Gorsuch is now Justice Gorsuch. There is a growing feeling within the Supreme Court uh, for this. But I believe it has to go beyond what the Supreme Court can or will do. It has to include deeper reform, including reform that Congress itself needs, needs to bring about. In other words, anytime there is a regulation that imposes affirmative obligations on members of the public, particularly if it's economically significant, so we're, we're um, I'm not describing here regulations that determine what time the lights go on and off mm. in the State Department, for example, mm. uh, but something that imposes affirmative obligations on the public, that should not be allowed to change. It shouldn't be allowed to escalate, to increase the burden on the public before both houses of Congress have affirmatively enacted it into law mm-hmm. and submitted it to the president for signature or veto. Mm-hmm. But as you say, uh, politicians find this very convenient. And so what is going to be their incentive to change this mechanism? I'm so glad you asked that, Nick. Mm-hmm. The only thing that will change this is the voters themselves. Mm-hmm. And the voters themselves demand reform. When they demand the Global Trade Accountability Act which I described earlier, which would require Congress to approve any um, any actions of trade warfare, or the RAINS Act. The acronym stands for Regulations from the Executive in Need of Scrutiny, mm-hmm. uh, which would require an affirmative uh, act of both houses of Congress in order to approve and, and allow to take effect major economically significant regulations. Mm-hmm. Um, 
when the voters communicate that to political candidates, they understand. Mm-hmm. The, the RAINS Act, for instance, which would take care of this problem, most of it anyway, in the regulatory sphere, uh, prospectively, has passed the House of Representatives six or seven times in the last decade. Mm-hmm. Um, sadly, it has never received an up or down vote in the United States Senate. Mm. That needs to change. Yeah. It won't change unless or until you have more senators and more representatives who at the time they're running for election or re-election are asked, where do you stand on Reigns Act? Mm. Where do you stand on government bureaucrats being able to put in place acts of law that are binding on the public without Congress ever voting on it? Mm. Nine times out of 10, when a voter asks that question, uh, it's going to make a difference Mm. in, in that candidate's likelihood of supporting legislative reforms like these. Mm. So uh, this is actually a very easy thing to change if and only if we as a country start incorporating it into our political discourse and recognizing it for what it, what it is, mm. which is a, a tyrannical form of government. Mm. Now, look, it's, I, I, it's not uh, quite as evil or menacing as we imagine King George III mm. to have been. Mm. It has a smiley face on it and it has an American flag attached to it. And that's, mm. that's great. Mm. But we sh- still should regard it mm. as fundamentally incompatible with who we are. Mm. It's incompatible with the principles embraced in the Declaration of Independence. It's one of the reasons why I wrote our last declaration. Yeah, I think that's terrific. It's very hard to get people excited about, for example, the RAINS Act, unless you can show them the connection between some of these you know, sort of wonky uh, um, technical provisions of how law gets made the relationship between that and our founding principles and the ways in which uh, the administrative state is you know, perhaps inconsistent with what the framers were imagining and maybe more consistent with what they were rebelling against. As I like to say, in my small town in Utah, we speak of little else. But you know, <laughs> uh, th- this is the kind of thing that, that anyone, it, it, really anyone, regardless of where they fit along the ideological spectrum, uh, whether they're a, a conservative Republican or a liberal Democrat or a libertarian or, or, or something else on the political spectrum. This is not an ideological um, uh, choice. Uh, For example, uh, even if you uh, are a liberal Democrat, and that probably means you're not necessarily thrilled uh, 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 by this president, if in fact you want to expand the role of government and expand the size of it. But if you don't like the current administration at at any given moment, uh, you ought to want reforms like the RAINS Act. Mm. You ought to support them. Mm. And President Trump happens to agree, and he Mm. thinks we need the RAINS Act too. Yeah, that has been one of the more mysterious dynamics during some of the uh, um, Supreme Court hearings and judicial hearings. The folks who seem most up in arms about uh, some of this administration's policies are also the most avid defenders of deference to these agencies. And it's kind of bizarre in a way. It's almost a sort of reflexive uh, fondness for big government, I guess, even when the government's not you know, run by folks who you would prefer. Right. No. Even when it's run by people who they oppose yeah. and r- run by department heads who, whose confirmation uh, they oppose. Yeah. Uh, they're still supporting it. Very often what I hear <clears throat> from my colleagues who don't like the RAINS Act, for example, is, well, we need the expertise that they bring. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, but what happens if that expertise is utilized in a way that you don't like or that's going to harm your constituents. Mm. Surely you're not willing to say just as an abstract uh, uh, principle that you're going to defer reflexively to any executive branch agency, even Mm. one that's headed uh, uh, by a department head appointed by a president who you oppose. Mm. But regardless of whether you support or oppose this or any other president, Mm. you should be concerned about people who are not subject to election, not really even Mm. accountable to anyone who is in turn elected, making law, making law that substantively affects your rights. Yeah. And by the way, <clears throat> there are, we, we asked for an estimate a few years ago from the Congressional Research Service of the number of federal criminal offenses that can be committed under U.S. law, mm. just federal law. What we were told was stunning, that the total number is unknown and unknowable, yes. but that it, it's at least 300,000. Mm. 300,000, when you add in all of the administratively designated criminal offenses. Mm. That is, some executive branch, unelected, unaccountable bureaucrat yes. decides that that uh, violating this or that regulation 
is also going to be a crime. It becomes a federal crime. That's right. <clears throat> James Madison wrote in Federalist Number 62 that it will be of little benefit to the American people, that their laws may be written by uh, individuals of their own choosing. If those laws are so voluminous, complex, and ever-changing, that they can't be read and understood by those governed by them. Yeah. Today, uh, the, the Federal Register, the Annual Cumulative Index of Federal Regulations, as they're promulgated and then finalized, uh, a few years ago, it reached as long as 97,000 pages for a single year. Amazing. So the, the, these laws are now so voluminous and complex that they can't be read and understood by the American people. But they're also not even written by individuals of their own choosing. Mm -hmm. That's tyranny. Yeah. We need to change that. Uh, there's a um, Twitter feed that you may uh, enjoy if you don't get it already. The A Crime a Day Twitter feed. So they um, uh, send out the most absurd crime that they can find each day, and they do not seem to be in any danger of running out. So there's, I guess they have... A crime a day. Yeah, they can do that for decades without uh, denting the, uh, the, the uh, hundreds of thousands, as you say. So, um, now, uh, you bracketed for a moment the uh, courts, and I'd like for you to talk a bit more about that. You and I are um, uh, have a particular interest in the federal judiciary, uh, Two of the grievances in the Declaration of Independence uh, that King George had obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. And he has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. Now, of course, the Constitution and Article 3 is uh, framed very much in reaction to that, those particular grievances. I wonder if you just talk a bit about that, the importance of the independent judiciary today and quite what, what the problem was under King George. One of the essential features of a republic, a constitutional republic like ours, is that the laws have to be written, put in place by uh, elected officials who stand accountable to the people at regular intervals. It's just as important that those who resolve disputes cases and controversies in gar involving the meaning of this or that provision of law <clears throat> need to be not accountable, uh, need to be outside of the political process. Uh, even though this sometimes results in decisions that you or I or any other American might not love, mm -hmm. I, I can honestly, confidently say that uh, as a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, I would stack up the, the federal court system, warts and all, uh, up against any system of its kind in the world, mm -hmm. and, and it would it would come out favorably. Mm -hmm. um, and this is because we've maintained the independence of our system of laws. Mm -hmm. And even though this, there, yeah, there's occasionally some decisions some of us might not like, mm -hmm. for the most part, our federal judiciary is really an amazing thing. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of parts in the in, in the book where I talk about what King George the Third did. To bring about sort of the opposite result yes. in colonial America, I talk about the struggle that, uh, that that Governor Martin, Governor Josiah Martin, had in um, in the early 1770s in North mm. Carolina, yes. where the Crown was refusing its assent to laws authorizing the functioning of the judiciary, and as a result, North Carolina went for several years without an, a functioning valid judiciary. As a result of that. It interfered with their ability to trade, to mm. engage in commerce, because there was no certainty as to what, how laws would be interpreted, what could be enforced in court, what couldn't. Mm. Um, and so anytime the king manipulated with a, a, a colony's uh, justice system, it had the ability to negatively affect the rights of individuals. I also uh, tell some stories of how uh, elsewhere in the country, uh, King George III had manipulated uh, the way the jurisdiction of the courts would operate mm. uh, so that uh, the system couldn't function as intended, mm. so that he could bring about the substantive ends he wanted. Yeah, there, um, uh, the um, deprivation of trial by jury and uh, hauling uh, colonists across the ocean to stand trial in England clearly... Uh, gave rise to the exact provisions of the Constitution requiring trial by jury, requiring that the trial be in the district, et cetera. So these were, um, th these were uh, the grievances are, um, may seem obscure, but they actually uh, are the underpinning of, you know, one of the most important structural provisions in our Constitution, uh, Article Three protections of the independent judiciary. That's right. Uh, 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 in, in many of these 
provisions had themselves been in place for many hundreds of years in England, mm. guaranteeing them to mm. all British subjects. Mm. And uh, we, our, our, our forebearers uh, who lived in America, were themselves British subjects, but they were denied these rights. Yeah. It's one of the reasons we had a revolution and we won. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you mentioned that you're on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, maybe you could just tell us a bit about that work and how this informs that work. Uh, what, um, what do you uh, think of the uh, judicial nominations from this administration? And how do you think the work of the Senate Judiciary Committee is uh, doing as to that? I've been thrilled um, by this administration's uh, uh, approach toward the federal courts. Mm -hmm. We've gotten top to bottom mm -hmm. from federal district courts uh, to, to federal courts of appeals mm -hmm. uh, all the way to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. uh, this administration has taken great care in selecting those uh, uh, who will be entrusted with a black robe, mm -hmm. uh, who, who will be entrusted with the task of making law during good behavior for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. And it's an honor and a privilege to get to serve on the Judiciary Committee and to get to know these people as they come through the process, to ask them questions and hear those questions answered. You talk about uh, the deep state and its sort of analog to King George and to tyranny, but a willful judiciary, a judge or justice who believes that it is his or her job to make law rather than interpret law as written is in a sense, equally or even more tyrannical. Yes, it, it is tyrannical. Mm -hmm. It does cause problems mm -hmm. because the, the courts are there to say what the law is, not what the law, law should be. Mm -hmm. um, it, it is um, The judiciary is there to provide a retrospective view rather than a prospective view. Mm -hmm. what, what has been done with the law rather than where the law should go mm -hmm. or will go in the future. So yeah, it, it, that subverts things. When mm. judges use their office, their black robe, their lifetime appointment, mm. uh, their immunity from, uh, from the political process as an excuse to engage in lawmaking, mm. that's really bad. Mm. Uh, 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 Federalist number 78 talks about mm. this. When you replace will, which is exercised by the political branches, particularly the legislative branch, with judgment, you subvert the will of the people mm. and you, you leave them in a, in a form of tyranny. I would like to make the case that it's important for people to remember the most dangerous branch is not, in my opinion, the judiciary. Mm -hmm. No matter what, the judiciary is still limited to deciding individual cases or controversies brought before the court. Mm -hmm. The most dangerous branch by far is Congress, mm -hmm. and it's made itself even more dangerous by refusing to exercise its power. Mm -hmm. uh, just the same, uh, danger still has to be addressed everywhere mm -hmm. in our system. And if, if someone abuses that power, within the federal judicial system, there are certain recourses that can be brought. First of all, we've got a very good appellate litigation system in our country. Mm -hmm. Very often a judge who makes a bad ruling can be overturned on appeal. Um, and um, in theory, it's not exercised very often, but the political process still can re-inject itself uh, through the impeachment and, and removal uh, process uh, contemplated by the Constitution. But this is why it's so important that we have judges who are who feel themselves to be bound by text, yes. bound by the words of the law and the words of the Constitution as against by their sense of right and justice. And I think the, um, the work that you've been doing on the Judiciary Committee and the uh, work of this administration and nominating people who are truly bound to that principle and have written and spoken about that principle, I think it's hugely important. Yes, and, and Professor, I'd say that that is one of the important things for us to focus on in our work in the committee is mm -hmm. finding people confirming those who will interpret the law based on what the words themselves say. Yeah. And, and that itself is also not a political, mm -hmm. uh, a politically divisive topic. Mm -hmm. At least it ought not ever be. Yeah. I, I would hate to see someone, even if, if it were someone who uh, uh, called him or herself a, a conservative Republican, I would hate to see someone coming forward saying, yes, I want to be a judge and I want to remake the law based on what I think it should say mm -hmm. and to reimagine it in, in my own uh, conservative or, or liberal ideology mm -hmm. based on the fact that I, I wish I were the lawmaker and I will try to make myself such. Mm -hmm. That's not okay. We should call that out, and I, I think calling for that involves looking for people who are what we call textualists or originalists, yep. people who will look at the law and say, we have canons of statutory construction that will help us interpret what 
a, a particular statute says. That is my sole objective, is to figure out what the law requires. Hmm. By the way, uh, you're quite right to say that uh, judges only have the power to decide the case before them, for the parties before them, but there is a bit of a new trend where in the course of doing that, the district judge actually enjoins the enforcement of the law nationwide. And that's been happening more and more and to an unprecedented degree under this uh, administration uh, has not really happened before. I don't know if you've studied that uh, phenomenon at all, but um, judges are claiming a great deal of power for themselves these days. They are. And it it ought to be doubly troubling for us. Uh, First of all, that a judge could issue a nationwide declaration Mm. is itself kind of spooky. Mm. Uh, But secondly, when, when, when you peel it back and you think about what that means, the reason that that is as powerful as it is because these agencies themselves have enormous power. Mm. Typically, a judge uh, asked to decide a case, to preside over a case, uh, to, to handle a particular case, has jurisdiction over the parties before the court and can decide that case. And if an injunction is warranted, then uh, that injunctive power can apply with regard to any of the parties properly before the court. Mm. If a judge is saying, I hereby issue a nationwide injunction, and if it has that effect, and unavoidably has that effect because of the, the, the sheer enormity of the agency before it, that ought to be troubling to us. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why we ought to be troubled by the fact that the executive branch of the federal government has become as big, mm. as powerful, and as laden with king-like discretionary power as it is today. Mm. So we've talked a great deal about uh, some technical controversies of today and some uh, doctrines that people may not be so familiar with. I think you've done a masterful job of uh, tying those controversies to these fundamental principles and to our our founding documents, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And uh, I think you're you're quite right. This uh, needs to be um, required reading for high school students, and really for U.S. senators, I'd say. So, but uh, you've done a, the country a great service, and thanks for writing the book. Thank you, yeah. Professor. Yeah.